Praise God, you guys. Uh, yeah, I talked to Leanne, and Lisa and I did extensively the other day, and man, you know, cheerful, but, uh, you know, prayerful and hopeful, and, and she's, she's doing, you know, you can imagine, it's unexpected, you know. He was actually at work, you know, uh, trying to help with reflectors where he, you know, in a very dangerous area, and apparently the woman didn't see him and went off the road a bit and smashed him, you know. And, uh, uh, but it's just so keep, keep Leanne in prayer and keep Travis in prayer, amen. And we're going to be having the memorial. Uh, Leanne asked me to do the memorial here at Blessed Hope uh, in a few, few weeks. So, you know, pray about that as well, that the Lord be glorified, amen. All right. Are you guys ready? All right. The name of the, this is... We, we've got the run-up. We're doing a, a campaign to reach Simi Valley. Uh, we have a, a lot of people coming to Christ through our ministries that come through this fellowship all the time. In fact, we'd be remiss if we weren't, weren't you know, sharing with you and we don't share with you as much. We're always sharing on our team um, when we go, our evangelism team with regard to like Good Fight. But we, a lot of times those testimonies don't reach here because it's on our thread, you know. So those who are part of Good Fight have a thread. And in that thread, I just got a, I think it was just, Two days ago, you know, Chad sent a comment from, and we got a, a, some more, more, we got another comment on there just a while back too, on the Rihanna Super Bowl deal we did, an expose, and one was, man, I've, I've turned to Jesus Christ after watching this video, I hate seeing it, but I have to admit it's true, uh, and the person turned to Christ, and, and then I just saw one two days ago that Chad put up there, and the gal, or the, I don't know if it was a gal or guy, but said, you know what, I just want to let you know, I just accepted Christ into my heart in my life, and I'm in tears right now from watching this video. It brought me, you know, uh, and the, the tears were about accepting Christ, you know. And uh, that happens over and over and over again, guys. And how many people actually leave a comment that they got saved after they watch it, you know? So we run into people all the time that say they got saved or entire families get saved through watching these things, and it's just a beautiful thing. But that's what, but we wanted to bring the gospel home. Here we are in Simi Valley. We want to reach Simi Valley, Amen. We used to, when the church was new, because so many people had gotten saved through Good Fight, we used to have presentations, Good Fight presentations, and see a lot of people get saved, you know, uh, whether it was all over the place. I've done it all over the place, but we've done it here. We haven't done one here for some time. But what we're doing right now is getting uh, the gospel out to a ton of people throughout Simi Valley, and we've talked about the different ways we're seeking to get it out, but you want to make sure you're participating in some way. But this, this campaign, Set the Captives Free campaign, we'll get, it's, it's coming close. We're going to be out three days in a row. We're going to hit it hard, right? There'll be other things going on as well. But there's things that are prepped for those days, and you'll get more and more notifications as to how you can help, whether it's going to the streets, whether it's filling bags with stuff, the ammunition. Everybody needs to work, right? I love what it, it uh, says in the Scripture where David's men, those who uh, didn't, they weren't stuffing bags, but they were guarding the ammunition and, or you know, guarding uh, their stuff, and the others went out to war. And David said those who were doing, you know, guarding the bags and so forth and the resources got the same cut of the booty that those who went out to war in defense of Israel got, in defense of God's people got. So I think that's beautiful because all of us who serve Jesus, no matter what you're doing, if you're serving Jesus, you'll be wonderfully rewarded in Christ. But we do it not so we get rewarded, although that's beautiful, awesome. We do it so we can see people get saved, amen? So uh, we've had this little series going on, on power tools of the gospel. And uh, we did two parts, really four, because one of the things we covered with a little bit was testimony. 
But I did a whole message on a Wednesday about a testimony, and Tony gave his testimony, which was so powerful. If you haven't seen that, it's a few Wednesdays back. Watch that message on giving your testimony. And, uh, and then uh, watch Tony's testimony afterwards. Really powerful testimony, man. Really, really powerful. And I mentioned last week that his brother, which he gave me an update, uh, I think yesterday, you know, is uh, really seeking the Lord right now after hearing his testimony. The power of your testimony is beautiful. And that we also uh, have one on creation. So on these different points, I think I went through like seven of them or six or seven so far. Uh, the power of the Holy Spirit as a power tool. Uh, the power of prayer. The effectual fervent prayer of righteous man availeth much. Uh, the power of love. You know, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Amen. Uh, the power of the gospel. is the power of God of salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, and so forth. Uh, last week we looked at the power of the testimony. Uh, that was separate than the message I did on a Wednesday with Tony's testimony, but I talked about the power of our testimony. And last week we also talked about the powerful name of Jesus, amen? How we have power over the demonic forces, or Christ's name. Through him we have power over demonic forces, uh, which is a big part of ministry. Just read the book of Acts, amen? And last uh, Wednesday we talked about creation. And I want to do a little bit more on that because when I did my message last Wednesday, if you haven't, I didn't... You know, sometimes, you know, you just, as a pastor, you're just, you're praying, you're preaching and so forth. And sometimes you're not, you don't realize the response you're going to get that the way certain things affect certain people. And I didn't think that message on creation would affect so many people the way it did. I had people right afterwards, some people that rarely come up afterwards and talk, several people that don't usually come up afterwards and talk, say, man, that really impacted me. And I thought it was interesting because the message wasn't giving a bunch of evidences of creation. So you might want to go back and hear that from last Wednesday. It talked about the importance of the doctrine of creation in witnessing and how Satan seeks to blind the minds of those that, those that believe not lest the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ should shine on them. And how the very theory of Darwinism, or even just evolution, even long before Darwinism, comes out of paganism. It's all occult, you know. And even Darwin himself, you know, I went through the actual quotes and, you know, you know, and so forth, where not only he called himself, you know, referred to himself as the devil's chaplain, in reference to what he would eventually write called Origin of the Species. But he also said uh, he thanked, you know, Thomas Huxley, his bulldog, uh, for propagating the devil's gospel, okay? And how, was, how does Satan use Darwinism? It's simple, man. Because you can get rid of God through Darwinism. If, you, if, every, if death is a result of just, you know, accident and we just, we just exist and it's all by chance and, and death came into the world just as a result of, you know, Darwinism, you know, and so forth, uh, then there's no, then that contradicts the scripture because the Bible says death came to the world because of what? Because of sin, amen? So through Darwinism, you get rid of sin, you get rid of the re meaning of death, and then of course, because of that, you get rid of what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? Are you paying attention? Then you get rid of the gospel. You have no, no need for the gospel. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a satanic attack. And I actually get into showing how Marxism, I quote Marx, two or three of his poems, and, he, and atheism is, you know, he was an atheist, and the most destructive, over 100 million people, think about how many people that is. People say, oh, well, there's people that have died in religious wars. Yeah, there's a lot of Muslims that killed people. Well, what about all the Christians that killed people? You mean the Roman Catholics? That's not true Christianity, Okay. And anybody killing in the name of Jesus, and I use that when I witness people, I say, hey, if I take your name and I start killing people in the name in your name, but that's not what you want, does that reflect on you or not? Well, it wouldn't be fair. Yeah, that's right. Don't do that to Jesus either, man, in true Christianity. He said, if they, he said don't resist evil. 
they slap you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. Amen. If they reject you at one door, he didn't say burn the house down. He said go to the next, next door. And if people don't repent in the end, well, then they're going to have to stand before God. So, but what's interesting is Marxism, just in the last century alone, killed upwards of over 100 million people, more than all the people that have, by far, that have ever been killed in all the religions of the world. And these, these messages and power tools, you know, of the gospel are, are meant to and show you how to witness, encourage you with the resources you have in Jesus, but also give you some apologetics along the way. And when somebody brings up the war issue, I was just... Who, somebody just told me, somebody brought up, I think it was you again, Tony. Somebody said, well, what about the religious wars, right? You know, and that's why you wanted my notes from Wednesday. Uh, sometimes, don't always come up and get my notes. You can have them, Tony, that time. And once in a while, I'll give them out. But it's hard because sometimes I go, hey, can I have your notes? Take notes. But Tony wanted the quotes. So that's cool, Tony. Because a lot of heavy quotes from, uh, from uh, I say that because I'm like, oh, no, I just give advertisement. I'm going to have more and more people asking for my notes afterwards, you know. <laughs> I write like a doctor because I scribble really fast, you know? So remember Tony Palacio's wife, Cheryl, was in the back. She goes, how do you write that fast? I showed her. I go, that's how. You can't even read it. You know, I can read it, you know? Uh, but it's important, guys, that, that we, you know, absorb a lot of what we're talking about here to make you a better witness. We just had two messages on all these different power tools, you know? Uh, and I want to talk a little bit more about creation. And this isn't about how important it is as a doctrine. I did that last Wednesday. And because I wasn't giving examples of creation, I, didn't, I, had, I felt necessary to still share that message. I didn't realize it'd be impacting as it was, but I think it helped a lot of people see, wow, we really need to focus. That's one of the most important doctrines in the Bible, and it's underrated, and Satan attacks it, you know? So well, I want to talk a little bit more about creation, and not just creation. I want to talk about another Different power tools, another one as well. I don't know how many we'll get through today. I wanted to sh I shorten my message to instead of 92 pages, only 85 pages long. No, just kidding. It's about eight pages long, but it's half the size of a lot of my messages. So I shortened it because I wanted Holly and Chad and everybody to share how their deal went. Uh, now, go to Romans chapter 10. This is a fascinating couple verses. And I've pointed them out before in this fellowship a couple different times, but I think they're underrated verses too that really talk about the importance of creation. And I didn't bring this up. I'm going to bring things up I didn't bring up on my last Wednesday's message on creation. Uh, in Romans 10, verse 16, Paul is talking about the importance of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the importance of getting the gospel out to the lost. Amen? You know, and he says in verse 16, However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Verse 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. And this is what's heavy because Paul says, how will they hear unless someone's sent, right? You know, and how will they believe unless, you know, someone's sent, all that. And so it's like a lot of preachers, when they preach a message on evangelism, you have to go because how will they hear if you're not sent? And if you don't go, how are they going to believe? And it's on you if they don't believe. And if they're condemned because you're not going out. And they'll put a lot of guilt on you. And I understand because I want to motivate my brothers and sisters in Christ to get out there. But they don't keep reading and let the people know that guess what? But I say they have heard, uh, verse 18, but I say surely they have heard, have they? Indeed, they have, Paul says. It's like, wait a minute, how have they heard? Well, they haven't heard the explicit tenets of the gospel necessarily, but they heard the beginning, the preceding 
words from God, this preceding evidence from God that prepares our hearts for the gospel. And if we respond to the evidence that God is speaking to them through creation, through nature, right, applies their hearts to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, and then Paul goes on to say, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the, to the ends of the world. Paul's saying they have heard. Well, what when they heard? Does Paul think that's sufficient for them to be saved? Well, no, because he emphasizes the importance of preaching the gospel, but he's letting them know, guess what? God's already been at work in them to prepare them to hear the gospel. And if they respond to the light that he gives them through creation, right, in their conscience, then he'll give them more light. It'll bring them to the gospel. In fact, where Paul says in verse 18, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's quoting Psalm 19, verse 4, which says, their line has got out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world, right? Same thing. But what's Paul's point in chapter 19, verses 1 through 4? Looks into what he says right before that. The heavens are what? Telling of the glory of God. Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, said, when he looks around at the earth, and I don't know if he's thinking about the crime or whatever else, he could see where people could doubt God. He goes, but you can't look up into the heavens and doubt there's a God. You know? The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Their expanse is saying, hey, God did this. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are their words, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In other words, guess what? God's creation, his witness in creation, his messaging through the witness of creation transcends every language, every culture, every barrier. Amen? That's why Satan attacks it. That's why he muddles it. That's why he wants people in concrete, concrete jungles where they don't see trees, they don't see birds, they don't see animals, they don't see creatures. That's why he wants them stuck in their, in their caves just playing videos all day long every day to keep them from seeing his wonders, to keep them from seeing his glory. Now it's important that we realize huh, the significance of this because so vast is the evidence in his creation. You and I, let's be honest, we can't even make a blade of grass. Oh yeah, I can. I could just buy a grass seed and plant it. You have to get your own seed, though. You have to make your own seed. You can't take God's seed, okay? God's made the entire universe, and, and it's just a blow mind. But so significant is this witness that God himself says those who deny his existence after seeing creation are inexcusable. They're without excuse. In fact, Romans 1, 18 through 20, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. In other words, guess what? God has given you the ability to ascertain, to decipher, to, to analyze the creation and say, wow, that's way beyond anything we could do, right? I mean, if I see a car, I know that's something beyond what monkeys can do, right? Because we're vastly as humans superior to monkeys, right? But when I see the galaxies, I know that's beyond what you and me could do because God's far superior to us. Way beyond what, between, the chasm between us and God is way beyond that of 
us and chimpanzees. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. In other words, God is making, specifically designed the universe that's evidence of his existence. It shouts at people every single day. I remember before I was a Christian, I would call myself an agnostic slash atheist. I wanted to be an atheist, but I'd look around and say, it's too, too amazing to say, I just have to say I don't know. I have to at least admit that, if I'm going to be even partway honest. Because you can't be an honest atheist, because the Bible says you're actually suppressing the truth within yourself. You're holding it down. And to be an atheist, you would have to be God. You'd have to know everything to know there's no God. Does anybody know everything besides God? No. And if you were God, then you couldn't be an atheist. You'd have to believe at least in yourself. Never thought of it that way, but it makes sense. Everybody just said, you know. But you would actually have to be God to know everything. Nobody knows. We know, I was telling somebody yesterday, we were talking about theology and so forth, and I was you, Anna. I was saying, you know, we know basically an infinitesimal, I, I hate it because I get interviewed a lot on radio and stuff, you know, and sometimes television, and, and a lot of times they'll introduce me as an expert on a subject. I hate that. I tell them, don't call me an expert sometimes. I don't want to be an expert. God, because even if it's a domain I'm really familiar with, right, I think God is the only ultimate expert, and I'm afraid of that word, because we see through a glass darkly, amen? And, and we know in part, and we, we see in part. And praise God, there'll be one day that we'll know as we're known, amen? amen? We won't have the omniscience like God has, but we'll know as we're known. And uh, it's amazing when you think about it like that. But it's interesting, verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, three things he mentions there, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Wow, they are without excuse. Now, we're called as Christians with gentleness and respect. says, with gentleness and respect, we're supposed to give everyone an answer for the hope that's within us. Remember that Greek word for, you know, answer? Remember what that word is? Can anybody remember that from Wednesday? Apologia. Praise the Lord. We even did a little, little, you know, learn this Greek word moment, you know, apologia. And I said, everybody, there's, there's threads online where people have a hard time pronouncing it. And they're like, how do you pronounce it? How do you pronounce it? Uh, it's apology is how most people say it. And the G there is a gamma, which always tripped me out because when I learned the Greek alphabet and learned how to read Greek, uh, the gamma is not a J small sound like Jim, G-Y-M, right? It's got the ga sound, right? Like gamma, gum, ga, ga. So I, when I look at it in Greek, I'm learning apolo, uh, apologia, okay? But the popular way to say it is apologia, which makes sense because we say apologize or apologetics, right? And it's from apologia that we get the word apologetics. And it's very easy to say. And you're, that's the word that Peter used when he says that you, not just not pastors and elders and deacons and so forth, all of us are to be ready to give an answer. An apolo, the Greek word is an apologia to everyone who asks about the hope that's in us. And it's from the word apologia and I, that we get the word apologetics. And apologia doesn't mean to apologize. I'm sorry I'm a Christian, but you need to get right with Jesus. You know? No, it's to give a defense. It was used for defense lawyers in biblical times. Give a defense of God's word and persuade people by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the word of God. Amen? The apologia. And it's so easy to say. So I'm like, man, these guys are all struggling to say apologia. 
which I understand that because I'm sure I struggled at times when I was because I was trying to get the gamma. Like the gamma is not being pronounced right there, but hey. But apology, it's easy. Just say the word apology with me. Apology. apology. I'll just add a uh at the end. Apologia. You got it. It's very easy. So you've been called to give apologetics as Christians. I was telling, I think when uh, Anna and I were talking yesterday, uh, you know, that we're all theologians, really. I don't care if you're a new Christian. I don't even care if you're not a Christian. You're a theologian. Because theologian comes from the word theos, or theo, which is the word for God in the Greek, and the word logos. Logos is the word for words, a message. So theology is words about God. Everybody has words about God. Don't care who you are. They have an opinion. The question is, are you a good theologian or are you a bad theologian? Amen? That's the question. Now, he goes on to say in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And so he's given us minds, intellects, consciousness to understand that there's order in nature and that it's, it's grand, it's powerful, it's, it's functional, it's purposeful, it's meaningful. Even the sunset, we trip out, we see the beauty and we don't understand why it's so beautiful to us. Maybe, I don't know, how, how, how does a Darwinist try to explain that? Well, when you see a sunset, you're struck with awe and beauty and even sometimes tears because... That's your fellow cousin from distant past. You are an evolved gas. And those gases in the air. And Come on, I don't, how do you get around these things? It's just ridiculous. Because we have a beautiful God that's created everything. That's made us in his image. And by the way, do you know who the founders of modern science is? Christians. Professing Christians. Kepler and you know, Sir Isaac Newton and others. They were. That's a trip, man. A lot of time's gone by, and a lot of creationists will point out over and over again, a lot of creationists will, will, will point out that the founders of modern science were the creationists. you got all these civilizations going on for thousands of years. How come that happened? Because Christians understood that God, since he's a God of creation and order, that you'd be able to see the things he made, you'd be able to see order. You'd be able to see purpose. You'd be able to see a reflection of the transcendent, and they were able to study it for that reason. So I think it's very, very interesting. But I want to give you some lines of evidence, you know, in a minute. But I want you to understand, I think this is important. Because the question sometimes comes up when you're witnessing. In fact, this is, when I street witness, when I street witness or wherever I'm witnessing, sometimes this comes up more than just about anything, this question. What about the, I hear it like this sometimes too. People say, what about the Aborigines who've never heard the Aborigines in Alaska, or they'll say, no, I'm sorry, they'll say Africa sometimes. What about the Aborigines in Africa? I try to not to be sarcastic and say, the Aborigines aren't from Africa. <laughs> That's, I think, Australia, you know. But, uh, but the point is, is what about those who haven't heard? And most Christians get all like, I, I, I don't know, you know. And there's a very clear biblical answer in John 7, 17, Jesus said to the religious leaders who were rejecting him, he that wills to do the will of the Father will know the truth. They'll know the doctrine. Remember, Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? You're free. He that, free he, th those who will do the will of the Father will know the doctrine. They'll know who he is. He'll reveal it to them. 
I know that with Scripture because in the Scriptures in Proverbs 1.7, this is what I share with people. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Beginning of knowledge, beginning of wisdom. Said it, says it over and over again in Proverbs, Job, so forth. So if somebody sees the creative hand of God and they're like, wow, whoever made this is way bigger than I am. And I know deep down that I'm not doing right because we have a conscience that God's also given us to bear witness that we're sinners and we need to do what's right. And that, that conscience will also affirm when we do what's right and we'll get a good feeling about it. Do what's wrong, we'll get a bad feeling. And we have a sense of accountability to this creator. So you begin to fear this God. And the fear of the Lord is beginning to what? It says in 1.7, knowledge. Elsewhere in Proverbs and, and Job, it says wisdom. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is the application of that information. So the fear of God is the both beginning of knowledge and wisdom. We start to fear God. Guess what? We, he will give us more knowledge now. And he'll give us, he'll show us how to reply that knowledge to our lives. Wisdom. And you see how this works. The scriptures say that the secret of the Lord or the friendship of the Lord is with those who fear him and he makes his covenant known to them. Wow. What does he do? With those who fear him, he increases their knowledge and he makes his what known to them? His covenant known to them. What's the covenant? Jesus introduced a new covenant, what he did for our sins. Salvation, the gospel, amen? So the Bible actually lets us know that if we fear the Lord, eventually we'll arrive at the gospel. Well, well, what if someone never comes to you? God will bring someone to you. Remember Cornelius? God bless you, Josiah. Remember Cornelius? Remember Cornelius? He, he, feared, he was a God-fearing, he was, in a, he was a Gentile. He feared God, he says. He feared God. He actually gave to the poor and he fasted and stuff. But you know what? God took that Cornelius, a, 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 a leader among the military of Rome, and without going into all the details, because we talked about this before, but... It's always good to bring things up again because that's how we learn. But the cool thing is he brought Peter and Cornelius together through a series of visions, an angelic witness, bringing them together so Peter could preach the gospel to him. And he received Christ as his Lord and Savior along with his family. Amen? It says he received the Holy Spirit. He was baptized. But God moved the pieces around because God is God. Amen. And he could do that. How could he do that? Because he's God. Okay, that's why he could, how he could do that. He's God, amen? He moves his pieces around. It's a very easy thing for him. So the cool thing is you have answers. Someone says, what about the aborigine, aborigine in Australia? They get it right. You say, praise the Lord, yeah. Yeah, but guess what? Praise God, he reveals himself to anybody who fears him. Because the Bible says in that very context that God, Peter says, I learned from this experience when God directed him to share with Cornelius and Cornelius to come to, to meet him. He said, I learned from this experience that there is no partiality with God and that he accepts everyone who fears him. Wow. Checkmate on that question, right? Because that's given by atheists a lot of times, you know. But there's biblical answers to these things. And a lot of times I don't hear those biblical answers given in the way, well, we're all made differently, but the way they should be, I believe, expressed. It's very, very clear in Scripture. And we need to give these answers to non-believers. So it's important. Now, I want to give you just, I'm not going to go in depth in any of these, but I'm going to give you, you know, about you know, four or five different lines of evidence you can use when you're sharing the witness of creation to a non-believer and you're seeking to persuade them. And I pointed out to the congregation last Wednesday that when Paul was dealing with people who didn't believe in the God of the Bible, he was dealing with people, Jews that, didn't believe in the God, that did believe in the God of the Bible, he'd go to this text, it is written, it is written. 
he showed that Jesus is Messiah from the Old Testament. You just go through the book of Acts. But when he was encountering people who were pagans, who didn't believe in a personal, omniscient, omnipresent God, he dealt with the creation motif. He dealt with the creation, that there's a creator, and pointed to him as the creator of the one God, the creator of all things. For instance, with the Athenians on Mars Hill there in Acts chapter 17. So when you're ta- so and over and over again, I gave in one of the home groups we did, we had a series of messages on witnessing and sharing the gospel, which are quite different than what we're talking about now, because now I'm going through all the power tools. But in one of those, I, you, I went through the word persuasion in the book of Acts and used, looked at all the different play- places where that word is used or the concept is used of how God would use Paul or the apostles to persuade non-believers. And now as believers, we're to persuade them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some believe, oh, you're either predestined one way or another. Well, why in the world would you try to persuade someone if, they had no, if everything was determined, right? Makes no sense at all, right? But guess what? We do have a choice, and, we will be, and we're with, that's why these guys are without excuse. They're without excuse, amen? They have to respond. One of the, the first line of evidence I love to use is, in the beginning. What a eureka moment it was for so many scientists, and this is, this is underrated evidence. I, I like to use this to get their attention. Because atheists oftentimes take for granted now that there was a beginning. But guess what? Atheists, physicists who are atheists, didn't want to believe there was a beginning, so they subscribed to what's called the steady state theory. That the the universe has just always been here. That matter has always been here. Maybe it's taken different forms, different shapes, and coalesced and what have you, but it's it's been here forever and ever and ever. It's called the steady state theory. There's no, and when you have the steady state theory, it's like Darwinism. Well, it's a steady state theory. We don't need a God because, we, you know, matter, is, time, space have always been here. Ooh, man, that went by the wayside. When the Hubble telescope, you know, uh, a couple years before that, I mean, there's the Big Bang Theory came up because of, it's, uh, it's kind of complex, but because of... Uh, the moving away of the galaxies from one another and so forth. The sounds, it's into a lot of different things. Uh, uh, sound and, and like if you hear a siren go by, you know, you hear it coming, then you see it go by, the sound dissipates. And, and they, they found in, 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 the, in the cosmos, there's a dissipation of that sound as the, the, the uh, it's too complex to get into here and get through the rest of my message, but that the, the universe is expanding. But when they were able to develop the, uh, uh, Hubble telescope, they had even clearer evidence that the universe was expanding and it had a beginning point. Of course, they like to call it the Big Bang, okay? However God did it, he did it, right? But we know he did it according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, one day at a time, amen? But there was an initial, we don't have a hard time with an initial burst of energy, but I'm not a Big Bang proponent. I'm just saying at least they're on the right track to realize the universe had a what? A beginning, and they recognize, scientists today, almost all of them will virtually agree that before, that, there was, that time and matter and space, these three things had a beginning. Now, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? There's space, there's the heavens, there's matter, the earth, and there was the first day, right? There's time, right? It's all in the first chapter, right? 
And us Christians are like, yeah. One of those scientists, because of what happened here, a top scientist, it might have been Jastro, it might have been one of the leaders at NASA. I'm trying to remember who it was because I don't have this in my notes and I wasn't going to talk about it. But uh, he was talking about how it's as these scientists, these physicists were climbing these last rocks to find out how the universe came to be what it is. And when they get through that last rock up this Mount Everest type mountain, there's a, a band of theologians that have been sitting there all along that have already known. And that's why, guess what, folks, you share with people, guess what, science, up until just decades ago, right, to the last century, we're trying to say that there's a steady state. Einstein went and looked through the Hubble telescope, and when it came down, like, oye or Eureka, and now I understand, there's a beginning. And he started making statements like, God doesn't play, uh, you know, dice, and how God's mind must be like this vast library, you know, and so forth. He was a pantheist, but he had because he, he still didn't want to submit to the one true God. But he had to admit there was a creator. So also the scientists all of a sudden they've now they because the scientific advancements they had to acknowledge that there is a beginning. Amen. So that's something you can do to share with people sometimes to get them to think like, wait a minute, science has been really, really, really wrong. Scientists have been really, really wrong before. When I was in the occult, I was channeling a lot of demonic stuff, as a lot of you know in my testimony. One of the things I wrote was, nothing never was and always ever is. Sounded great, sounded philosophical, sounded cool. It was a lie. When I became a Christian, I'm like, mm, that was wrong. Nothing never was, always ever is. And the reality is that guess what? God always is, but guess what? There was a time when we didn't exist. And this is a crazy thing. You know, this is a crazy thing. So this gets into uh, the cosmological argument of origins, origins of the universe. Is now they have to deal with the beginning because they have to admit, guess what? Time and space and matter didn't exist at one time. What existed before that? Before the universe. The universe didn't make itself. So you have two propositions. And one of these propositions makes a lot more sense than the other. Either nothing made everything or God made everything. Well, what about if it was space aliens that made everything? That wouldn't work because space aliens are part of the universe if they exist. We know they exist in demonic, as demonic entities. But let's say there's some space people on Jupiter that we don't know about, right? In some of the caverns that have been created by some of the meteorites, and they're just hiding in there. Maybe they made it. No, they're part of the universe. Something apart from the universe had to make the universe. And the law of cause and effect, which is a scientific law, determines that the cause is always greater than the effect. So the universe is mind-blowingly big and powerful and full of energy. Whoever it is has to be more powerful than it. And guess what? That doesn't fit, nothing does not fit the bill. And I've shared with you several times how Richard Dawkins, the poster boy of atheism today, admits that if he tried to explain how absolutely nothing made literally everything, he would sound cuckoo, or as he said, mad. Yeah, because you can't even begin to explain that because nothing, by definition, has no properties. And they typically mean, by nothing, absolutely nothing. How do you define nothing, <laughs> you know? Nothing is, as one scientist said, the things that rocks think about. You know? That's what nothing is. So you have the origin of the universe, number two, the cosmological argument. Number three, because uh, I have to get through these, uh, you have the origin of information and the origin of life. Without information, we can't have life. And we're filled with information 
And I spend a lot of time on that, you know, when I talk to you, because I think that's, that's one of my favorite evidences, because it's irrefutable, and we're in the computer age right now, right? In the tech age, everybody's using social media, and there's computer programming. You, got, you have guys like Bill Gates, one of the richest guys on the planet, synonymous with the computer age, who admits, who stated, that when we look at our computer software that we've created, he goes, it's nothing compared to the digital code in the DNA. Not even close. It's not even close. In fact, did you know this? Because I often talk about the, if you stretched out your DNA four to six feet long, supposedly, the, 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 each helix that's in your cells, and we have 30 to 100 trillion cells, it would go to the moon and back, you know, zillions of times, basically, or just a bunch of times, even to go to the sun and back several times. It's ridiculous. But this is another thing, I, another way I could share it. I thought, what's another way I could share that? You have about 100 trillion cells, many estimate. Can't get our brain around that. You know how long you take you to count to 100 trillion? Several lifetimes. Several, 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 several lifetimes. But guess what? Each, each one of those cells has 3.5 million letters in it of information. Every one of those cells has about 3.5 million letters of code in it. And it's functional code. And we get into the DNA processor and all that stuff. It's just, come on, you know. Uh, which leads me to the next one, uh, the origin of irreducible complexity in molecular machines. So when we say irreducible complexity, and this was done by Behe, uh, a, a scientist who believes in creation. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box. And the idea of that was a black box in the front that Darwin would just see like the outside of a computer. He really didn't understand what was in the computer. But now we have so much more information about what we are like like the computer people can know. Well, we, now we found out so much more about us that Darwin was clueless in regard to how deep everything goes. And guess what? We are irreducibly complex. What does he mean by that? In other words, you can't evolve half an eye and it be functional. Take some parts out of your eye, it doesn't work. Right? So why would you even evolve part of an eye if it's not functional? Because supposedly, because of natural selection, right, and mutations and, and Darwinism, what you are basically, what parts of you are evolving are somehow helpful to you in some way. Well, how would half an eye, even Darwin talked about how silly his theory seemed when you looked at the human eye. You know, we hoped for advancements in understanding of that, but the more we understand about the eye, the more complex it was than we ever knew. I know one time I gave a study at a men's retreat on the complexity of the human eye, and I was just scratching the surface. It's just so, such a blow mind. But you have the human eye, uh, you have things that, you know, if, you, if, if your eye only works part way, you'd still be blind, right? And how's it, you know, and by the way, mutations, but, you know, given time plus mutations, eventually you're, you'll have eyes. And all these creatures that have eyes, it just all happened that way in all these different species on accident. And by the way, keep in mind, most mutations, by far and away, by the way, are deleterious to you. It's usually a fallout of what? Information, Right? You lose information when there's mutations. Now, sometimes that might be advantageous if you're a black moth and then you lose color because you've lost the color gene uh, or the color that or the, the gene that would help you blend in and then you become white, then the birds might eat you more. But that's because of a loss of information, not a gain of information. And I showed this to you a long time ago. Many of you who are here, I showed you Richard uh, Dawkins, a clip of him being asked... He didn't know it was a creationist asking him the question. They're interviewing him about, can you give us an example of where 
new information has been added to the genetic code, the human genetic code. And it's embarrassing. It went on, I think I counted like 24 seconds. He's like, um, mm. because guess what? If you're going to evolve from one species to another, there needs to be what? New information added to your genome, to your genetic code, because everything's based on the information given in your genetic code. And he is like, so give us some evidence where there's new information being added to the human genome. And he's like, he puts his hand out. He says, turn the camera off. Embarrassing moment for him. And that's the thing. By the way, did you know humans, every generation, are losing more and more of the information in their genome? If time continued to go on for zillions of years before the Lord intervened, we'd just be, we'd be fully devolved into just not even be able to exist because that's the reality. Now, it's interesting, too. Information shows that there's a mind. There's no message. Can anybody give an example of clear messaging, a message that's been given, information that's accidental? No. You go to the park. I use the example sometimes. I like it. If you're, or you see, Frank loves Susie, and here's the date. And you say, oh, how did that happen? Your atheist friend says, well, I, I, you, I, I believe you say, somebody obviously carved that in. That, you see, it's all carved in, and the date and everything, and it's symmetrical. And, and the atheist says, no, you can't just posit that that was created. Maybe a bunch of pine cones just hit the right places as they fell from the, you know, just some. But that would, that would be more feasible than the universe, by the way to say that, but it's just ridiculous. So when they say, oh, you can't bring religion into it. You can't say God did it. That's religious. Well, wait a minute. We, do, we infer creation all the time when we say we see a, a written message. We say, in fact, you know right now, there is a SETI. You know what SETI is? Anybody know what SETI is? It's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, S-E-T-I, a government program, SETI. S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. You know what we're doing, our government's doing? We're sending, we're, we have satellites pointing into deep space. And guess what we're looking for? We're looking for messages from ETs. Because we know if there's information that has a pattern, which is trying to communicate with us, and we pick it up and we see a message, we know that that message isn't going to be by chance. But there's an intelligence behind it. What does that show you? That shows you that they know <laughs> that when there's information, and that's, three, that's not 3. They're not looking for 3.5 million letters in each cell of you know, 100 trillion cells. They're just looking for little messages that are repeated. And then they'll say, if they get messages that are repeated, they'll say, there's intelligence life. Because where there's a message, there's a mind. And you have the most vast message possible that we know in human existence written within your body in every cell how tall you would be, the shape of your nose, the color of your eyes, how your organs will work, how they're to be built, how they'll be repaired. It's all in there. Come on, man. We know there's a God. Okay? You have to not, you have to not want to believe. Where there's smoke, there's what? We have that saying. There's fire. Amen? Where there's, you can use that example. If you see a smoke, ask what, 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 you know, when there's smoke there, they'll say fire. Yeah. When you see a message, you know there's a mind. And the mind that made this was not our minds. It was the God of all creation. Amen? But when we talk about the uh, irreducible complexity, think also of, yeah, I mean, you can think of those cells containing all that information. But think of a, uh, I like what Behe used. He used a simple mousetrap. Mousetrap just has a few pieces, right? Has the base, right? Has the spring. It has the, you know, thing that's hopefully 
kills that mouse, right? If you take any one of those pieces off, is mouse trap any good? No. It points out that's the way it is with so many of our, our organs. Take certain parts of our organs out, they don't work. So how could they revolve? So they're irreducibly complex. They're so complex, in other words, you can't reduce them to where they evolved over time because they aren't functional. Are you understanding? And I think that's really, really powerful, powerful argument. Blood clotting is a good example when you're talking to somebody. I mean, how long would it take to develop all the properties and all the functions to where your blood clots, right? First of all, it's not going to happen because there's no added information to the genome. So that's why I went back to that. It's not going to happen. But if it would happen in time, how many years? It would have to happen pretty quick, right? Because guess what? If we didn't have blood clotting, we weren't created with blood clotting, we'd be leaking all over the place and we'd die first cut. Do you understand that? Yeah. <laughs> Amen. What's that, bro? Unless people, Unless people take a shot, which they probably weren't taking back then, right? One ape says, I got the shot until we evolve enough. You know? No, that, that's not going to work, right? <laughs> so you also have the origin of animals. And I'm not going to go into that. I mean... When I did a debate with uh, the skeptics of Ventura, it was supposed to be a debate, and then they decided they didn't want to debate, so it was just Rich Cromwick and us. And I thought, oh, I guess we're not debating anybody, but then it was the whole group was saying things. So I'm like, oh, that's not a fair debate. But even the guy that set that thing up told us afterwards that he felt, well, you guys won the debate because your presentation was more flashy. You know, it's like, well, no, we had the facts. But one of the things I love to use is animals, man. And uh, I should have got this up here on video for you, but I didn't, but with regard to creatures, animals. Uh, one of my favorites is, and I saw this on the National Geographic or somewhere years ago, and I was like, no way. You know, remember a couple weeks ago I showed you the, in one of the messages, we talked about the hawk moth. Remember that? I mean, that thing, it's a, it was a moth. You'd see that moth, you think it's just a moth. But it runs like a lizard almost, right? It flies like a hummingbird. They call it the hummingbird moth too. And it swims through the water. That's how I caught it up in the hills. When I was with my grandchildren, I was like, I couldn't barely see it. And I, I'm like, end up getting it. And what is this? And I think we found out there was tens of thousands of different moths. And it's like, this is one. I'm like, can we identify it? And it was identified as a hawk moth. I'm like, it's like, it's everything. It does everything. I mean, that doesn't happen by chance. But one of my favorite things, which I saw in National Geographic years ago, back to that, was I'm watching this cup, you know, flower with a plant, and this bee gets caught in it, and he's trying to, trying to get out of it. He's, got, he's trying to get sweetness and nectar and stuff, but he's caught at the bottom of it, and he's just like oily substance, gluish, oily substance that's transparent. And he's walking through it, and he's stuck. And I'm like, poor bee, and I'm watching this. I'm like tripping out. And then he starts trying to climb up, but he's so slippery, he keeps falling down. I'm like, poor B, what's going to happen? Because I was young, and I'm like, I was a new Christian. And all of a sudden, there's a little hole. I'm like, oh, he found a hole. This is cool. A pass there's light at the end of the tunnel. He starts going through this tunnel. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. He's going through this tunnel. That's crazy. And he gets to the end of the tunnel. He comes out on this, this little place where he could just lift off like a little airplane. And he's there, but he's too wet to lift off. He's just sitting there. But I mean, he could take off. Now he's found his way out. And then all of a sudden, this plant comes down with a tentacle, sticks something on his back. Lifts up the tentacle, and it's a, it's a seed. And it's stuck to his back because he's got like this gluous, oily substance on him. And then he's going like this, and then he takes off. I'm like, no way. Well, just over billions of years, you know. Yeah, you can laugh because it is a joke. And deep down, the atheist knows it's a joke. And he just goes and flies, and that seed eventually, he dries enough, that seed drops, and that plant reproduces. According to its own kind, by the way doesn't become a cactus 
You know, God says everything will be done, you know, is created after its own kind. So you have the origins of animals, the origins of humans. Lord, help me go through this really, really quick. You have the origins of human beings, you know, and uh, tell Yasmin the guys before me went long. Okay, no. Uh, <laughs> But you have the origin of, of human beings. And uh, come on, we're way beyond. And the Bible says we're different. We're made in God's likeness. Okay? Humans reason. We invent. We, have, we paint. We have arts. We do all kinds of crazy things. And we oversee the animals, just like the Bible says. So I won't go into that much more, but that's powerful in itself. Uh, last thing I'll mention, uh, right, and I'm, I'm not going to get beyond creation, evidently, uh, this message, but praise God, is the fine-tuning of the universe. The universe is so finely tuned. It's like you'd have to have, you know, like 100 knobs or something and tune them all perfectly or beyond that, really, because I don't think we know so much about the universe for us to be here on this planet. You have the fine tuning of the universe. You have the earth. It's the perfect size. If it was bigger or if it was smaller, our atmosphere if it was smaller, our atmosphere would be like Mercury's and we couldn't exist. If it was bigger, we, our atmosphere would have too much hydrogen, free hydrogen, and we'd be like Jupiter and we couldn't exist. We couldn't exist. Our atmosphere would, and by the way, since I'm talking about the atmosphere too, there's atmosphere, it has the right mixture of gases, you know, oxygen and, and, and nitrogen. If you had way more oxygen and different type of, uh, and the nitrogen was off, you could light a match, everything just go up. Okay, thank God, for, and by the way, we can breathe, amen, because <laughs> there's the right amount of oxygen in the air. So important. I'm hitting these things really quick because I'm at the end of my message pretty much. Uh, the position of the earth, if the earth was closer to the sun, we'd all burn to death. If it was further from the sun, we'd all what? Freeze to death. The fact that it's on its axis in a perfect, uh, the, the degrees of its axis are perfect, is perfect for our survival as well. The moon, it's perfect size. It's perfect size. If the moon, uh, and I think this is interesting, uh, if, if, if the moon was a different size or in a different place or a different shape, uh, the waters would stagnate because they control our tides our waters, ocean waters would just stagnate. Or they would also eclipse their boundaries. The Bible says God's given the, the ocean's boundaries and they would fill the continents. They'd flood the continents. Really fascinating. Water. Water's fascinating. There, you could do a whole study just on water on any of these things we're talking about. You do full studies that just blow your mind. It's so different than everything else. It's weight and the way it, its surface structure, it, it moves up to the highest trees to water them. It's not like other substances. In fact, it, you, if you... Take water, I mean, it's because of water that we can have absorbed nutrients and vitamins and minerals and all those things, amen? And we need water to survive. But it's crazy thing about water. It's the substance that if you freeze, it's the only substance that if you freeze it, it floats. There's a lot of liquid substances, only one that floats. And it has to float because if, God did, if, if water sunk, right, when it got hard, what would happen to all the fish? They would die. And then, but, get, but guess what? We can't really drink seawater because of salt, but guess what? God came up with evaporation. He evaporates it. He moves it through winds, through the clouds, and so forth throughout the planet and waters us. Amen? And then we can drink that water that comes down from the clouds. Amen? It's just so... Every, you could talk about a, some of these things. You could have several knobs of fine-tuning just within the thing itself that have to be tuned right. So it becomes exponentially brilliant, you know? It's just mind-blowing. Jupiter. Jupiter. What's Jupiter everything to do with it? Jupiter is like a cosmic vacuum cleaner. It's a huge planet, right? But guess what? 
It has saved us, who knows how many times from God putting it where he put it in our solar system because it absorbs asteroids and comets and meteorites. And if you go look, Jupiter's hit like more than any other planet because it just sucks them in. It's so big. and keeps them from hitting us and destroying us. So you can look at Jupiter and say, thank you, Jesus, for Jupiter. That's evidence that, no, Riley, it's evidence that you care about me. Amen? What an awesome God we have. You know, recently, uh, Stephen C. Myers, who we've interviewed with Good Fight Ministries uh, some time ago, uh, one of the top physicists in the world from a, a creationist, that's a physicist, incredible, impeccable credentials. He was just interviewed by Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan is really out there in a lot of areas, you know, leading people away from the truth. But I'm grateful that he's now bringing more Christians on, right? And uh, Chad just did a, a deal on, with, uh, that covers that interview a little bit. And uh, on a, a recent 5.11 show. But it's interesting when you look at Joe Rogan and he, and, and he talks about the fine-tuning of the universe. He gives, he, every example he gave for fine-tuning is different than the examples I gave right here. I gave ones that are really easy to get your brain around. He gets into a lot of the, the deeper science with certain things, you know. It's really heavy. But, but guess what, guys? You know what Joe Rogan said? He conceded that, wow, there's a lot of fine-tuning going on. It's hard to refute that, right? So you know what he says? Well, what about the multiverse? This is, this is the idea. Maybe, guess what? There's not just this universe, which we don't even know where it ends, but maybe there's billions of universes, and they're all by chance, and we just happen to be the lucky one where everything's fine-tuned. That's an actual argument that people are using. They have to go there. Why? Because they have to get rid of God. They have to deny their creator. So they have to, that's the evolutionist uh, atheistic, I should say, pie-in-the-sky view. Well, maybe there's billions of universes or millions of universes, and we're the lucky one where everything just was finely tuned perfectly so we could evolve. There's a couple really big problems with that. <laughs> Number one, you still need a cause who's greater than, who's even greater now, right? Greater than all those universes, because it doesn't happen by chance. Nothing doesn't make everything. Number two, and this is, the, this is my main one, there's absolutely no evidence for a multiverse. There's no indication where people have peered in and said, ooh, there's a multiverse out there. The Bible talks about the physical realm. It also talks about the spiritual realm. That's part of God's universe and his heaven. But there aren't other physical universes that we know that. So guess what? Isn't this interesting? Now you've just turned the tables on the atheist to where he has to go to nothing created everything. And then he has to say, and nothing, by the way, must have created millions of universes. We just have to be the lucky one. That's why it all works. It's got to work in one of them, maybe. Who would say, you know, the chance it would still work is zero, even if there was a multiverses. It's still zero that it would happen by chance because none of these things can happen by chance when you look at uh, the molecular code and everything else. So it's still refutable that way. But guess what? You just say to your atheist friend, well, wait a minute. What evidence? Don't, aren't we talking about science here? Are we talking about, are we having an argument about science here? What evidence do we have that there is a, there are millions of multiverses? Zero. What we do have evidence of is that we are in a universe that's incredibly powerful and finely tuned, which, show, with, which has all kinds of information, which shows you that there's a mind behind it, and we call him God. Amen? Amen. 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 Praise God. Can we pass out the cup and the bread? I can still beat my grace period. <laughs> Praise God. Please stand up. Let's, amen. Give glory, glory to God. Amen. He is worthy. Praise God. We love you, Father. We praise you for the evidence of your creation, Lord. You are good. Hallelujah.